You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, you recently dug up a paper that you're really excited about. So give me give me the title, slow, because I know these are sometimes, sometimes very wordy and complicated. So what paper are we talking about? Well, actually, I ended up uh, looking it up because I'm, I'm going to go down and see... Um to the Alan Turing Institute and visit with Chris Holmes's team there. And one of their recent papers is on the marginal likelihood and cross-validation. And it's on archive. And it's it's a fairly recent, it's May 22nd dated. Uh, and it's Edwin Fong and Chris Holmes. I must say, I, I'm not following the details of it, but this general strand of work that Chris Holmes has been looking at with students and collaborators, in this case, Edwin Fong, is this area known as M-Open framework for Bayesian modeling. I don't even know if I've ever heard of M-Open. Give me the rundown. Now, now actually, I have to be careful because there's different frameworks. Um, so I, I believe, so in classical Bayesian inference, the idea is you can delay decision-making until after your inference. And this is inference in the probabilistic sense, not in the neural network prediction sense, until after your inference because as long as you have the correct probabilistic model within your broad class of models that you're considering, because you're using a prior to consider many models, you can do the decision-making in a separate step from the inference. And the problem with that is that it's rarely going to be the case that your the models you're considering are complex enough to include the real model. So the real world is pretty complicated and the number of things we can do probabilistically, even if we go quite complex, is is a lot more restricted. It's something that you often learn at the beginning of when you're being taught about Bayesian inference. You don't think too much about it and you say, okay, so this is great. I don't have to worry about decisions. I can just worry about doing my inference and, and spend a lot of time doing complex integrals. The M-open scenario is a case where you Assume that the, the model you're interested in does not fall within the class you're considering. A lot of uh, Chris's work over the last few years has been focused on this. So I think it's this terminology comes from a very important textbook in Bayesian inference, uh, Bernardo and Smith. And I should say this work is coming out of the sort of Bayesian statistics community. Now, We're very lucky in the UK. There's a gentleman named uh, Dennis Lindley who um, died not that long ago when he was about 90, who is the sort of grandfather of almost every Bayesian statistician in the UK. Has had all these students, including people like Phil David, Tony O'Hagan. I think any Bayesian statistician you mentioned, probably Chris Holmes too, I'm not even sure with Chris, but probably very likely, they they descend from uh, Dennis's supervision. He was a professor, and the sort of only Bayesian at UCL, uh, sort of back in the 70s. Six degrees of Dennis, you can, you can, everybody's got it. Six degrees of Dennis, it all goes through Dennis. Whereas actually the machine learning Bayesian community allows a lot more to sort of Ed Jane's and what was called the maximum entropy community. So one of the nice things about interfacing across these communities, these origins sort of give them a slightly different philosophical approach and you can find out a lot of new stuff. So I would characterize the the Lindley community as being much more interested. This is a broad characterization in say variational methods, variational approximations. And the sort of Lindley community is much more characterized by Monte Carlo approximations. And the the Jane's community is, is much more characterized by variational approximations, not because Lindley and Jane's necessarily proposed these things, but just, I suppose, because these 
communities grew somewhat in, in, in not, not in total isolation, but they went to different conferences. So this M open scenario, which is thought about quite seriously in statistics, is, is what um, Edwin and Chris are looking at here. And, and their very, very interesting result is that the marginal likelihood, which is what you are using in Bayesian modeling, it's sometimes called the evidence, to evaluate the quality of your model or Bayes factors if you take ratios is equivalent to something they they call aggregate cross-validation. What does that mean? Well, this is very interesting because cross-validation is a model checking technique used by Bayesians, but also frequentists to sort of validate, as the term implies, the model. So cross-validation, people would be familiar with leave one out cross-validation. And that's where, say, you've got 20 data points and you train your model on 20 different data sets, in each case, leaving out one of the training points. So you, you create 20 different data sets with 19 points in each, where each data set is leaving one data point out. And then you try and predict the remaining data point for each of those 19, sorry, 20 separate models you've created, and you average the predictions. That's called leave one out cross-validation. So in the when you've got N data, you create N models, each one trained on N minus one points. Now, aggregate cross-validation, and I'm not sure if this is coming from them, but it's the first time I'd seen it. And it, I mean, it's relatively simple, but it just took me a little while to get my head around it. So they, first of all, define, okay, let's step back a bit. Often we don't do leave one out cross-validation because it's expensive, because it involves training N models. And if you've got a billion data points, then that's a billion models. So often in machine learning, we just do a holdout validation. So we hold out some proportion of the data some percentage and we train on the remaining data and validate on that proportion and that's okay another thing you can do is k-fold cross-validation where if you do five-fold you split the data set into five parts you train on four of the parts test on the fifth it's like doing leave one out cross-validation but with parts of the data set all of those are interesting techniques for checking generalization but aggregate cross-validation is something that uh, would be described as follows. So leave one out cross-validation. There's 20 different data sets for 20 points. Let me flip that around. Let's say we switch the training set and the test set. So I'm going to train my model on one data point and test it on 19 data points. Okay, so I've also got 20 different ways of doing that. And I'm now, it's, it's different because I'm fitting my model to one data point, testing on 19. So probably I'm, you know, I'm more susceptible to overfitting. So that would be what they would refer to as leave 19 out cross-validation. So you can generalize this to leave P out. Now, but the difficult thing, or the different, not difficult, perhaps for this uh, sophisticated audience, if you then choose to do leave 10 points out cross-validation, there's more than one way of leaving 10 points out. In fact, there's um, n choose p, 20 choose 10, the binomial triangle number of ways that comes up in sort of when we multiply things together or in um, binomial probabilities, a Pascal's triangle, I should say. And so there's many different ways. Now, the aggregate cross-validation is assume we're going to leave p out and assume that we'll train all those different ways n choose p ways, where n is our number of data and p is the number we're leaving out. We're going to average over that. We're also going to do that for every choice of value of p. 
so including leave what in the uh, 20 case leave one out leave 19 out leave two three four five six seven eight nine ten eighteen out all of those ways leave everything and i find well i mean number one i'm i just i think that's amazing so it's clearly a very interesting way to validate your model right they, they leave p out and as, as they sort of point out i think they pointed out in previous work or no actually it may be peter grunwald and other people that pointed this out that uh changing p so if you choose to do leave one out cross validation then you're selecting for particular types of models and there's some issues with it um in whether it's the right thing to do so people have looked at things like leave p out cross validation and uh actually maybe it's uh, archivatari's work where they sort of interpret choosing p as it's a sort of selection towards a less complex model because let's say i leave 19 out and i'm fitting my models one data point and, and testing on 19 then the sort of models that i'm likely to pick are probably less complex because they have to be models that you can fit on one data point so it's going to be like fit the mean or something like that so as i increase p i'm selecting i'm probably penalizing complexity perhaps and as i decrease p i'm less penalizing complexity but the fact that the the Bayesian marginal likelihood is taking all of those into account, it's interesting for that reason because it's like, oh wow, so that's what it's doing. That's interesting. And there's there's really interesting papers, uh, I think called the catch up effect from I think that was the Grunwald paper I was thinking of from Peter Grunwald. He gave a talk back in UAI, I think in two thousand and eight great talk on that where um you can show that it takes bayesian models a while to sort of adapt to the increasing data set size relative to things like leave one out cross validation and i don't know if that's one conclusion that's not something they say here but i'm thinking oh that's so that helps me understand that but also the, the really interesting point i think is that this is not conditioned. This is nothing to do with whether my choice of prior is right or anything else. This is validating in the way that a frequentist might validate and doing some aggregate validation. And that's why it's interesting for this M open scenario. You're not relying on this idea that I've got the correct model. What you're saying is, look, my score I'm going to use for this model at the end is dependent on some aggregate cross-validation measure, which is interesting, you know, from a frequentist perspective as well as a, a sort of Bayesian perspective. So I, I just find that connection gorgeous. I, I'm not so well read in this area that I can say that, I mean, some of these ideas are coming from other papers, both by Chris Holmes and Aki Vitari, Peter Grunwald and others. But but this paper is is bringing a number of them together in, in quite an exciting way. The, the thing that they then look at towards the end is um, a sort of point that's, I think, quite strong interest to statisticians, which is these measures, although it's um, frequentist measure, it's still dependent on um, your prior to some extent, your choice of prior, be sensitive to your choice of prior when you've got low data. So uh, they also look at the case where you use some some data, some portion of your data set to effectively dilute that dependence on the prior. And then they're trying to use this technique as a sort of objective. I think I have to be careful with these words because, you know, you'd be surprised what little words can cause big arguments. An objective Bayesian is, is one of them. I'll explain that in a moment. Why is that one of them? I, I think, and I they don't say this explicitly, but I think, and, you know, I'll... I'll, I'll check this with Chris when I see him and, and he might punch me on the nose because I'm not quite sure where he's coming from. What's an objective Bayesian versus subjective? So there's objectionable Bayesians. We have lots of those. You know. 
<laughs> it's, it's not the same as that. Not the same as objective. Yes. Well, yeah, there's lots of that. Both, both subjective and objective Bayesians can be objectionable, but, but Chris is not an objectionable Bayesian. I think that this is an objective Bayesian perspective. What do I mean by that? Subjective Bayesians take the point of view that your prior is the belief of the individual and the knowledge that they're bringing to the problem. Whereas objective Bayesians try and do analysis of statistical analysis that is somewhat independent of the prior. So the Either you choose a prior which doesn't influence your decision in the end, or you do what, this is why I think it's related to objective Bayesianism, what Chris is doing here, you do something to weaken the influence of your prior. I'm not too deeply involved in those discussions because I think that they're arising very much from the statistics community where, where the original idea of the community was to draw conclusions from data without bringing your model towards it. And that isn't generally what I do. I generally think, well, I'm assuming a model, I'm happy to stand that up. And I think that's what subjective Bayesians do. But that's not to say that the objective Bayesian approach isn't interesting because very often, like a randomized controlled trial is one way of forming objective conclusions if it's correctly designed from data. And I think that in that sense, you know, and I'd have to check this with Chris, it's sort of, it's erring in that direction, which is, which is typically against what most Bayesians say. Most Bayesians accept that they're bringing some subjectivity to the analysis and that each individual has their own prior and that you have to account for that subjectivity in, in some way. So, so I also found that side of it very interesting. And it's, it's putting together a number of things that I find exciting in terms of proper scoring methods, which are ways of uh, checking for model calibration and those arise because of something that I also think is another paper everyone should read frequential techniques I'm not I can't remember the title of the paper but it's worked by Phil David on frequential inference which is a notion where you sustain a number of models and you reject those that are badly calibrated under your proper scoring technique that's sort of in the background but it's another paper I I, I like from some years ago perhaps 20 or 30 years ago Overall, a very exciting paper. I, it may be that I'm more excited about it than I, I might have been had I been reading each of the papers. I know Chris has been working on this with others for a period of time, had I been reading each stage, but it was just a, a great read to sort of try and catch up with, with where they are with that. And I love a paper like this, which is filled with elegant ideas, but then it's giving me a conclusion that, that really is going to help with my intuition about what something I I will work with on a sort of almost daily basis, the Bayesian evidence is is really saying, and a conclusion that is it's conditioned on my model, of course, because it's about the model I've chosen, but one that is not relying on on some notion of model correctness to be an interesting conclusion. Fantastic. And did you find this paper because you were just reading up on stuff that Chris has done lately because you're going to go visit his lab? Or was there another impetus for seeking this out? I should be careful because Chris said, oh, come down to the lab. Here's something cool. Oh. <laughs> yeah. He handed it to you. So now maybe I'll get a thousand people sending me cool papers. <laughs> but and, and, and that's very nice. It, it, when Chris Holmes sends me something that he says is cool, I, I'm pretty confident it's very, very cool. So the backstory is we were supposed to be chairing a panel together. I was on vacation for it. And we were sorting out whether we could reschedule. And uh, I think he was replying that it looked like rescheduling was going to be difficult. So maybe I should not worry about the panel. But did I fancy coming down and visiting the group? And I, I think he knows that I'm very interested in this area. Certainly, I've, uh, I can't remember when I last saw Chris, but I remember talking to him about it at Europe's one time. It's something I'm very passionate about because I, I think it's a glaring problem that this conditioning on model correctness and, and really... Um, 
you know, so in some sense, I think he was just sharing something that he knew that I would be excited about. And I was. So the new rule of thumb is to accept all invitations, wriggle out of them, get the people to send you papers so that you can continue to be friends and hang out. <laughs> how do you find time? I mean, it's one of the weird things is how actually I must say, so this is actually interestingly connected to um, a PhD viva I did the other day, which is Deval Ajoda uh, at um, MIT Media Lab. He'd been working with Sandy Pentland and uh, him and I actually got in touch because I think we're, we're both interested in how constraints on communication, certainly I, I've talked about it a lot in humans, might affect cognition and, and structures of cognition. But one of the things he looked at in his PhD thesis, which I do find a very, very interesting idea and relates in a roundabout way to what we're saying, is um, when you've got sort of multi-agent models and the topology by which they're connected can have a significant effect on their rate of learning and broadly speaking by driving the explore-exploit trade-off. And oh, I've been thinking about it since then in relation to uh, large conferences, small workshops and snatched conversations with Chris Holmes. And this is a sort of example about it. I think the basic idea, I mean, it's got some theorems there, but the, the there are certain network connections where models only connecting over a sparser graph will tend to explore the space of parameters better than if you fully connect everything. In fact, uh, the result that um, Deval has is that fully connected networks um, do badly and any sparse connection, I think, if I recall correctly, helps in terms of increasing the amount of explore. And perhaps this is under particular circumstances, but it sort of relates to this. You, you get to some point like, I mean, there's no way I can track every paper that's going on, but you know, certain people, you have these sparse connections, stuff comes up and you learn about it. And of course, you're not being dragged into necessarily the the thing that everyone's talking about at the main conference. I mean, it's some great work like... Um, you know, the David Duvernau and, and collaborators on the neural ODE paper. Yes. So you can, and it's great. And that's a great paper, but you know, it's, you know, part of me feels like, well, I probably shouldn't work on anything related to that right now because like 20,000 people are working on that and I'm not sure I can out sprint them. You know, some people can don't let it stop you working on that. But, you know, having... <laughs> Neil just can't move that fast anymore. <laughs> I can't move that fast. You get to... Well, you don't have the time either. <laughs> right, that's true. So it's just nice to have something where it's sort of more personal connections, people who you know and, and understand how they think. And uh, um, and also, I think the greatest thing is when there's some sort of... There's a partial overlap in the way you think about something. So the communication is easier, but also they, they think about some things very differently. And the reason I think... Would, this would arise in this case is probably I stem more from the Ed James school of Bayesian inference, being very influenced by people like David Mackay, who was influenced by people like John Skilling, Steve Gull, who actually worked with Ed James. I believe Chris Holmes is somehow much more influenced by the Lindley sort of school of Bayesian inference, which is neither one's wrong or right. They've just, over the time, they've just thought about different stuff, really. And, and we actually first got to know each other by both working in the area of computational biology, where he's done some amazing work he, he, in genetics and these things. He's just one of these people that, that uh, does amazing applications, great theory, and uh, yeah, very good stuff. Excellent. And give me the name of the paper one more time. It's On the Marginal Likelihood and Cross-Validation by Edwin Fong and Chris Holmes. You can tell it's a stats paper because it starts with on the marginal. If it were a neural network, if it was a, sorry, ML paper, it would be neural marginal likelihood cross-val, or it would be some name, wouldn't it? It would be like um, quaggling 
in this paper, we introduced quaggling, a new technique, which will turn out to be Bayesian inference at the end. But you, you know, that would be like five lines. There may be a connection between our approach to quaggling, something like that. And the deepest of neural yeah, yeah, networks. Yeah. Or it would be like, mono they would come up with a new, a totally new word, and then it would be colon, and then the rest of it would be like, monopin. In fact, don't broadcast this, because I'm going to write the paper on quaggling now. Yes. And submit it quickly somewhere. I say, oh, really? Oh, and it turns Neil, out they Neil, do this in statistics, We need to submit too. our abstract on quaggling right now to NeurIP so that we can have a placeholder so when that CMT opens, we can get our paper in. <laughs> Yeah, any paper starting on the is going to be a stats paper. I mean, if it's in the general area of data science, I think. Absolutely. Well, we will have a link to this paper and to Chris Holmes' lab on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Neil, this week's listener question is a little bit of a throwback because I am excited about it. So so that's a long way to say, Neil, I'm hijacking this week's listener question. Sounds good. So bear with me. Okay, great. So a couple of weeks back, we had a question about what we were excited about at ICML. And we talked about all sorts of stuff that was going on. It was very cool. But now I am really excited about something that I discovered at ICML, but really has to do with all the conferences and I think could be a thing for any other conference. You could port this idea to other fields. Neil, digital poster sessions. I am so excited about this idea, about not being packed in a room with 800 other people, not being able to hear people, not being able to like see and get close enough to the posters so that I can actually read the information on it. There's a new website, postersessions.ai, and it was put together by uh, two members of the AIML community, one of whom I got the privilege of chatting with at ICML briefly, and it is just a digital poster session. They are currently scraping information from all of the accepted posters that um, have been accepted to the major conferences. I think they started with iClear. I think they're intending to do ICML as well and hoping to bring it to NeurIPS. Um, and then contacting the authors of those posters and saying, would you be okay with us putting your information on this website? And it seems to me like such a foundational, like easy step to be able to put another filter on the like, you know, fire hose that is archive of information, but allow people to sort of broaden the the like the stage gate of actually getting to go to one of these conferences to see the papers, to see the posters and be able to to suck in the information that way. I'm so excited about it, but I wanted to like what do you think? Are there pitfalls that we're not seeing? I feel like this is such an easy step. I think it's a great idea. And of course, it doesn't always have to be deployed I, what was it i was i think it was last year's europe's where i i kept bumping into people i think i bumped into bumped into someone who who'd been a little bit ill so had stayed away from the conference and they were it was like it was great i just sat in my room watching the talks and i could actually listen and i could get a coffee you know and the speaker wasn't like 25 yards miles away and there were there wasn't a big echo from the back i well and actually and personally i mean in a poster session you know well, you can imagine, you know, I bump into people, I start chatting. And of course, you know, I'm quite quiet, but, you know, they'll often not shut up, you know, and I can't stop them talking. It's a big problem for you, Neil. <laughs> getting run over. Yeah, it's yeah. a big problem yeah, yeah, for yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, getting run over. Yeah. I end up like not seeing up, like supposed so to sessions. I end up like just being on the periphery and the post you're interested in. You can't get close to it because it, there's a there's hundred people there. So, wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, uh, I mean, 
I guess one one thing about the poster session, if if there is a bit of space, you, it's often a great chance to sort of one on one ask the poster presenter something that you perhaps couldn't ask, or it's of less wide interest. Even if that's true, to to be fair, because just the scale of the poster session, that's kind of hard to do at the moment at the poster session. Wow, so, so it's giving me a thought on it. I mean, so isn't it? Wouldn't it be great? You know, if you bump into that person, they come on a visit to your lab. They didn't bring their eighteen posters from their past, all their Europe's publications they've got, and you, they just sit down. They can go for it uh, in front of you. So, yeah, no, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's like, I think one of the things that I really like about postersessions.ai in particular is that it's a repository across conferences right now, which I think is really interesting so that you can see trends that different conferences might be following, but also, um, you know, just be able to look at sort of on a holistic scale, what's happening at each of those conferences, because at the bigger a conference gets, the more poster sessions you have to have. So any sort of like through thread of like, oh, all the posters at ICML or were super interested in this, or there's a trend around this that I'm seeing now, that becomes impossible to pull out. But when you have everything together, even just being able to like look at some of the like the graphics trends or the like informational presentation trends, I think is really interesting stuff because I think there's a lot, a lot of information gets changed or prioritized in the way that we communicate. And I know that, Neil, that your favorite thing is to talk about talking about how we talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence. But I, I think that it's it's a, an interesting thing. Whoa, whoa, how many talkings were, how deep was that hierarchy of there talking? Was like, it was like an end of three, I think. So, you know, it's okay. You know, we're not super deep into it. We've only got three layers, but it's there's many more. That we, it's not inception right, depth. Right, yeah, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, we're not quite there yet. But I think that it just, it, it creates a lot of really interesting opportunities for analysis and yeah, for analysis, for sort of like taking things to 40,000 feet so we can see where things are going. Something you brought up, I think, the other week, which was, you know, how much uh, consumption of our own data can we do? Uh, and maybe there'll be downstream opportunities there. I mean, we need to, we sh- should do more of that. But but also, I think as you're, you're more making the point that just humans sort of a sense of what's going on. And, you know, people aren't able to get visas always. They're not always able to travel. I was talking to another colleague the other day, and, and it was a bit depressing. There's someone that's quite busy, sort of in a head of a chair of department role, or I think you would say in North America, we'd say head of department. And they were just sort of remarking that, oh, yes, this week had opened up because they were choosing not to go to what was the main conference in their field. And I was thinking, Good heavens, I know exactly how that feels now because you're getting so busy and like you end up sort of pushing the conference out because it's giving you back time. But how depressing is that, that the thing that you choose that you can't go to when you're busy is is a major conference? And that's people who are making choices, the sort of uh, people who struggle to get visas and uh, can't attend these conferences. Yeah, I know. I think it's yeah, it's a great idea. It's a nice. It's also a nice, uh, straightforward idea, um, and uh, of course requires some effort. So um, it, it's great that uh, that's something I love about communities is that you get these emergent things. While some people are obviously mainly focused on driving their own idea, their own things forward, you know, you get these emergent things where people are, oh, that would just help the community. Isn't that fantastic? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we'll have a link to postersession.ai on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And just a little shout out, postersessions.ai is run by Jonathan Benis and Avital Oliver. And I'd like to take a second to thank them for putting together this pretty amazing thing, which I think is going to be a super helpful tool. So it's, it's postersession.ai rather than postersessions. It's postersession. Postersession.ai. Yes. Yeah. Though there are multiple poster sessions on it. And if you've got a question for Talking Machines, which I promise not to Bigfoot, you can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS. Though you might be Bigfooting Neil, we can't make any promises. I'm, I'm unbigfootable. Our guest this week on Talking Machines is Elaine Ensuizi. And when Neil got a chance to sit down with her at Data Science Africa, he asked her the first question that we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? So I was born and raised in Cameroon. And I think I got really interested in math as a child because my sister and I used to, we went to school, came home, and then we would sell food in the streets. And I think just doing that over and over again and having to do all that arithmetic got me into interested in mathematics and so I studied math. So you, you, you got interested in maths because every day after school you and your sister sold food in the street. Yeah, yeah. I so think, you got interested in the arithmetic of it? Yes, I just remember being so excited about algebra because I felt like it was stuff that I knew. So when I got to class and we actually started doing algebra, it was very exciting to me. Because you'd had to do maths just on the, the change and yeah, just, yeah. just managing the money or also managing the supply of food? Managing the money, the money mostly, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't like selling all the food because it meant I didn't have any to eat. <laughs> so, even though we had food at home, but I would go home crying. And so you were selling food the family was producing? <laughs> yeah, so it, must, it would be things like eggs, plantains, but I never wanted to sell hungry. everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so your sister is older or younger? Older. Okay, so she was the one sort of in charge? Yeah, she was the one in charge. She was more, more um, mature. <laughs> um, and so how, how did that evolve? So you, that caused you to like maths at school? Yeah, so um, in secondary school, I took advanced math and biology. Those were my two favorite subjects. And then right after I took the O-levels, we moved to the U.S. So now Cameroon is a Francophone country, right? Uh, both French and English. So were you French-speaking uh, or English-speaking? Uh, English speaking. Okay. But we went to a bilingual school. You went, okay. So you moved to the US and what triggered the move? My dad was already in the US. Yeah. Um, and at some point we were going to move and it seemed like the right time. So how long had he been there? He's been there for 16 years. Wow. Yeah. So he'd be, so the family's mainly in Cameroon, but he'd been there for 16 years. Yes. Right. So, um, and where did you move to in the US? We moved to Baltimore. Baltimore. Yeah. Okay. And so from there, um, was that a difficult transition, different education or? It was a difficult transition, not so much in the education, but more of the fact that we moved without my mom. So my sister and I joined my dad. Okay, so your mom was uh, then left in Cameroon. Yeah. Is she still in, she's still in Cameroon? No, she's in the US now. She's in the US now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you moved, and actually, and you hadn't lived with your dad before. So no. There's all sorts of things. Yes. We could do an entire <laughs> series. Now, when we were talking machines, I'd be like talking people and Precisely. stuff and what people have to deal with. Right? Yeah. We could do that. That would be a separate sub yeah. So you're in Baltimore.
Baltimore, um, and you're interested in maths. Um, but then, uh, so where did you end up doing your undergraduate? So right after I moved to Baltimore, I think the same month, maybe a week later, I started taking classes at a community college. Um, so those were classes towards an engineering degree, mm -hmm. um, and then moved from that to the University of Maryland College Park. So, okay, so do, you didn't go into high school directly, or do you, all right, interesting. So how old were you then? I was 16. You were 16, so you went, now I think that's fascinating about the US with the community college system. It yeah. gives this flexibility, which is, I mean, which isn't there in other systems. Like, yeah. actually my brother did something similar. So you started the community college and built the credits up there to do engineering. Yeah. Sorry, where did you say you did engineering? I went to University of Maryland College Park, yeah. and initially I wanted to do civil engineering, but then I started taking classes and I just realized I wanted to study math. Yeah. So I changed my major to mathematics. Changed your name to mathematics. So how did the shift from that occur to um, global health and public health? Oh uh, yeah, so both of my parents uh, work in hospitals. So I grew up in the hospital. I wasn't interested in becoming a medical doctor, but I was interested in public health. And, and so from the summer right after undergrad, I did an internship at the National Institute of Health in DC. And I really liked it. Yeah. So I'd applied to a bunch of biostat master programs. Um, but then my mentor said, study statistics, don't study biostats. So I applied to a statistics program. It was My application was very late, but I got accepted. So I went to Virginia Tech to study statistics. So that's super, and let's just pause there, because I think that's a super interesting thing. Your mentor said, don't do biostatistics, do statistics, which I'm very intrigued about. So, so what, why, did, uh, why did your mentor say that? She was a statistician working in public health, and she thought biostat was too focused, and that if I study statistics, I would have more options of choosing what direction I wanted to go with that. I think that's such good advice. Um, I mean, it's great to specialize, but delaying specialization can sometimes be very helpful in ensuring that you can do all the things you want to do. Yeah. So you did master in statistics and then moved on to, to the PhD, PhD at Virginia Tech as well? Yes, yes. Well, while I was doing my master's, I worked in a lab that did computational epidemiology and I stayed in the same lab for my PhD. I just transferred to another program. So computational immunology. So e epidemiology. Epidemiology. <laughs> yeah. Compu computational epidemiology. So tell us about that. What's computational epidemiology involved? Simplest explanations, the use of computers to study health and disease. Um, so we did a lot of computer programming, whether it's developing uh, large-scale computer models to simulate disease processes and see how infections spread through populations and how we can control it. Yeah, so in, in other words, modeling with the purpose of getting targeted interventions to mm -hmm. limit the spread of disease Precisely. as uh, quickly as possible. And one of the oldest areas of statistics with, uh, now his name's escaped me, the cholera pump example. Uh, John Snow. Very good. So in the PhD, and what particular side uh, focus was your PhD work on in that area? So my PhD reads uh, genetics, bioinformatics, and computational biology, but my focus was in computational epidemiology. Yeah. So it was an interdisciplinary program where we got to do math, statistics, computer science, and biology. And was there a particular disease you were looking at or a particular approach to modeling? I was looking at influenza and the goal of my, of my dissertation was to see if we could take the models that had already been developed and apply machine learning to, to the data that was coming out of that to make predictions of how influenza was spread through populations. And is that uh, across worldwide populations or within particular countries? The focus was on the US. So that's these um, influenza viruses that 
well, the Spanish flu killed some sort of, a, yeah. and probably didn't originate in Spain. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so influenza has a potentially debilitating, we have got past examples of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because it's, it, it has this mutating ability, it can be very, very severe for some seasons. So are you modeling jointly the mutation ability and the transmission, or uh, do you just focus on the transmission? We focus on the transmission, but we we could change the transmission uh, parameters to think about the worst case scenarios. Okay, so yeah. you sort of end up with a worst case analysis. Yeah. And what sort of, is that classical statistical techniques? Are you getting a lot of input from uh, sort of the in inverted commas modern machine learning neural network stuff, or we we used just classical methods, um, supervise machine learning techniques from yeah. support vector machines, a random forest um, for predictions. And I'm guessing a lot of spatial statistics. Not a lot of spatial statistics because the models, the way they're developed, already captures other aspects right. of the Because they've got that mechanistically. Yeah. You've done your PhD at Virginia Tech. How do we get to uh, be you and your assistant uh, professor? Uh, so after I finished my PhD, uh, well, before I finished my PhD, I was looking for data to evaluate the methods that I had developed, and I couldn't find data. And instead of talking to people, and I realized there were all these people that were working with data from mobile devices, internet sources, to look at infectious disease spread. And so I got interested in that. Ended up doing a postdoc at Harvard Medical School focused on new data sources and infectious disease surveillance. And then from there, I moved to University of Washington in Seattle uh, for an assistant professorship. I was there for three years and then moved back to Boston to join BU um, last year. So, um, and your focus is now on that, that combination of data with, with the models from mobile phone and the sort of modern data. Yes. Uh, the yeah. data that we didn't collect on purpose. Somehow. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So what are the challenges uh, around that and how do they relate to the sort of things that are going on in DSA and in the, the African country? The data tends to be very noisy, um, as you would expect, because it's not collected specifically for public health purposes. So we have to th work through a large amount of data to get to anything that's useful. Um, that's one of the major challenges. The second one is the fact that we don't know w whether people are actually sick. They could say they're sick, but they might not be. Um, so we don't have a way to validate a lot of the information that we get. So what we end up with are proxies of what we think might be happening in the community. And we can try to compare that to data from the CDC and see how well does What's it do. the CDC, the Center for uh, Disease Centers Control? Centers for Disease Control and see yeah. how well it, it, it compares to that. So I, I think there can be a lot of use for that type of data in African countries, especially in places where we don't have really good surveillance systems, but we have people using mobile phones and the internet and sharing information. We can use some of that data to improve our surveillance. Because the, the, there's something similar. So the CDC, is that a U.S. thing? Uh, uh, yeah, the U.S. has a CDC and other countries also do have their own CDCs as well. So I think in, in the World Health Organization, I know in Uganda has these so-called sentinel sites mm -hmm. where they're doing very carefully calibrated assessments. So is the idea similar that you would be able to gain mobile phone data, try and remove the bias, mapping it back to sentinel sites? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what sort of modeling techniques are you using for that? Uh, a lot of the data processing needs machine learning methods. So we, we would do um, supervised classifications or unsupervised classifications, depending on what problem we're trying to solve. A lot of data mining. And then at the end of the spectrum, you have 
regression and visualizations. Yeah, there's one thing that I always think is interesting, particularly in the public health sector, is that very often at the end, the best thing you can produce is a visualization to show someone where the disease is, because mm -hmm. having a human looking at it and deciding what to do, giving knowing the d disease distribution yeah. is often the best intervention, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, producing really good visualizations is very important. So it's interesting because you sort of got started on this because you were interested in the maths, mm -hmm. but that's much more moving back towards the human side in some sense, understanding how to produce. Would you say your research has shifted more in that direction or is it just a, is it a necessity that you have to visualize or is it a destination for you? I think initially it was necessity, but um, now I'm realizing that it's something that I'm very interested in and would want to do make sure that I'm producing useful and very good visualizations. Yeah, because it's a sort of, you can easily corrupt and misrepresent. Precisely, yeah. Uh, with a visualization. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But a good visualization really... That's something I'm a little bit worried about in machine learning, and it'd be interesting to hear your context, is that I don't hear us talking about that enough in the main conferences. But do you think there's enough going on in, in, say, areas of HCI and the visualization conferences to bridge the gap between the machine learning models and how to represent their outputs or the, the data to the human eyes? I'm not absolutely sure. I haven't gone to a lot of computer science conferences. I tend to go to public health conferences. But in places where I've presented this work, most of the time people don't really know much about visualization. So I'm not sure exactly how much conversation has been had about visualizations, but just communicating data science in general. There was a NeurIPS tutorial on visualization, I think, okay. last year or workshop. I think that's one thing that I find fascinating. And, I, and yeah, I'm curious as to how you got involved in Data Science Africa and what your sense of the experience is. Because I really started to understand the importance of visualization when we started producing data around malaria mm -hmm. and we were going to put it into the Ministry of Health. Mm -hmm. And I learned without having heard from Elaine about <laughs> the importance of visualization. <laughs> Oh, you can do all the modeling you like, but actually what they really need is a picture of where yeah. the disease is now and where they think it's going to go. So I'm curious, I've learned, I learned that here in uh, the uh, Data Science Africa meeting. So mm -hmm. I'm curious what you're seeing in these meetings and how you came to know about them. Early last year, I traveled through um, South Africa, Kenya and Uganda. And in Kenya, I visited IBM and met some people there. And I had told them how interested I was in working in Africa and working with Africans. And so one of them emailed me and told me about Data Science Africa, and that's how I heard about it. And then I contacted um, Martin, who was leading the um, organization last year, and he sent me a list of topics and said, this is the topics that we need someone to teach. Which one would you choose? And I chose visualizations. No, that was perfect, because Martin Mubangizi, who's a, um, a Pulse Lab in Kampala, and IBM uh, researcher in Nairobi. Nairobi yeah. And so they, uh, they've been at the first couple of meetings yeah. when we were in Kenya, they're, they're always yeah. there. And so you, you taught the Abuja course and have come back to Ethiopia. Is it giving you um, directions in your work to take? I find that, that it, uh, hearing what people talk about gives me directions to think about, even if not immediately, but in the mm -hmm. longer term. But are you finding the same thing? I am, I am. I think... Visiting Africa and talking to people and finding out what the challenges are and what kinds of problems they're working on has definitely inspired me in the last year to think more broadly about what kinds of questions I can be asking and how I could collaborate with people over here. 
and I find it, it's so interesting that you grew up so many years in Cameroon sort of as a lived experience yeah. and then you've moved to the US and had the sort of Western lived experience mm -hmm. and that now as you're saying you're coming back and sort of having that context inspire your work again yeah I, I don't even know how to phrase it <laughs> how, how is that what's that journey like for you it's been very interesting so in the period that I've lived in the US for the first 12 years or so I only visited once growing up in in Cameroon like I grew up in Cameroon I didn't know any other African country. I'd never visited other African country until I decided to stop coming back and visiting other countries. So it's it's a whole different experience. Yeah. Yeah. But what would you um uh, maybe this is a corny question. What would you say to that little girl who said <laughs> about where her maths interest was gonna take her uh, all those times ago? Just keep doing the stuff you love. <laughs> keep doing the stuff you love. I think yeah. that's great advice. Elaine, it's been really, really nice to talk to you. Uh, thanks so much for being a guest on Talking Machines and being such a useful support for Data Science Africa. Thank you, Neil. Elaine Nsoizi of Boston University. Really fascinating to be able to hear Neil's conversation with her. Well, that is it for us this episode. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode. <laughs>